happy Monday. I hope you had a really good weekend, um, and I hope you were like ready to go for court today. Because if you were looking at the South Carolina proceedings, you, again, I think you need a drink, and it's only Monday. Uh, and if you weren't watching what happened in the Murdoch trial in South Carolina today, do I have news for you? Um, I kind of bet the farm, proverbially speaking, that Murdoch was going to get a new trial. Because why wouldn't you get a new trial? If one of the jurors literally said in open court, that lady over there that works for you, that clerk of the court, yeah, she influenced my decision to vote guilty. To me, that's a no-brainer. It's just me. Yeah. And there was other stuff, too. I want to know what's going on in that courthouse. Because <laughs> all the crap that led to this hearing today about the potential for Murdoch getting a, a new trial based on Becky Hill and her bozo behavior as a court clerk, it kind of happened again today. Like, stuff, and, and that's a euphemism for rhymes with it, went on in that courthouse again today. The jurors were all brought back. Thank you for your service. Come on back. I got some more questions for you. But you're all going to sit in the jury room because I don't want you hearing each other being, you know, questioned in the courtroom. Did anybody ask them if they had their cell phones on them? Did anybody ask them if they had a live stream of the, the courtroom proceedings? No! Because that courthouse is absolutely bonkers. I'm just going to lay on the line. I smell an appeal on what happened today. We've got a reporter on it. All sorts of behind-the-scenes stuff. You just won't believe it. And then also, we are still on this Kansas City Chiefs story because this mystery is weird. Weirder and weirder. And we keep getting nuggets. Tonight, yet another nugget. This time, how one of the bodies was found. Does it make a difference? Does it give us clues? Does it change anything? And what about the homeowner, Jordan Willis? What about his mental health? He says he is floored, devastated, destroyed, depressed. He had to move. Everything has changed for him. He says he's the target of every kind of speculation you can imagine online. And, and we don't even have the toxicology back. But I got some stuff to tell you about tonight, though. How that body was found. Is it another piece of the puzzle? That's coming up. And then, do you remember, <clears throat> you do, I know you do. If you're watching this show, you're a true crime fan. I know it. Um, unless you're, like, too young, and you might be, but do you remember the Slender Man case? Two 12-year-old girls stabbing their friend to death. She didn't die. Thank God. These little girls stabbed their friend 19 times. Because they love this fictional monster named Slenderman on the internet. That girl survived. And she pointed to them. And they've been pretty much behind bars. I'll, I'll explain. I'll explain. They've been pretty much behind bars ever since. So do they still believe in this guy? Do they still want to appease this guy? Are they still murderous people? Because they were 12 back then and it was 10 years ago. Guess what? They want out. How do you feel about that? How does her victim feel about that? Their kids here, they ain't kids no more, and neither is the victim. All that straight ahead. But you know what? If we didn't know it already, tonight we have ironclad proof. It is 
basically impossible to get a new trial in South Carolina, no matter what goes on in your murder case. Alex Murdoch went into a special two-day hearing with really, honestly, what looked like a textbook case of jury tampering. His lawyers accused the court clerk, Becky Hill, of telling the jury in this murder case, quote, not to be fooled by Murdoch's testimony and to, quote, watch him closely. That's the clerk. So Natch, the judge, decided to eat, eat, you know, ask each of those jurors one by one if, in fact, they were influenced by this lady. And one by one, they all said no, except for juror Z. And that juror kind of stunned the court today when she said, yes, actually, yes, yes, I, I was influenced to vote guilty to murder by the things that that lady said. The things that Becky Hill said did influence me to vote yes to murder, guilty. And here's the actual quote. She made it seem like he was already guilty. She, Becky Hill, made it seem like he was already guilty. Okay, then there were also the allegations that that Hill and one of the jurors discussed the case in private. That juror was interviewed on, on Friday. Oh, we talked about something else. We didn't, we didn't talk about the case. And Becky Hill got up on the stand today. No, 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 we didn't talk about the case. We talked about what? What'd you talk about? <laughs> Cooking? Recipes? Knitting? Crochet? Surfing? Then there was uh, Becky Hill had a, a book, because you're the clerk, you know so much, self-published. She admitted in the book that she was rooting for a conviction under oath today in Columbia, though, she claimed that that was just what she calls literary license. Um, and I guess that's good enough. Good enough for the judge. It's not just any judge either. This is the former chief justice of the South Carolina Supreme Court. That is the judge that was tapped for this one assignment. She had one job. This judge had one job today. One. And she said murder conviction stands. No do-overs. Here's, here's how she put it. I simply do not believe that the authority of our South Carolina Supreme Court requires a new trial in a very lengthy trial such as this on the strength of some fleeting and foolish comments by a publicity-influenced clerk of court. Well, all right then. You said it. Gavel down. Everybody can go home. I told you that all 12 jurors were called in, right? Each one of them had to come in alone to the stand, one of them on Friday because of scheduling, and the rest of them today. But that juror Z, the one today who said, yeah, 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 that Becky lady, she, she made me, yeah, she made me go guilty on this one. She also said something else. She admitted that she felt more pressure to convict Murdoch from the other people on the jury panel more than she felt from Becky Hill. And the judge called her testimony ambivalent. Ambivalent. Uh, she said every one of them took an oath and took that oath seriously and that feeling pressure from other jurors is normal. It is. Uh, but for what it's worth, and apparently it isn't worth very much, a total of three jurors 
on that panel testified that they, in fact, had heard Becky Hill commenting on Murdoch when he was going to take the witness stand. And that his testimony was, quote, important or epic. But only one of them, Juror Z, said that it actually affected her vote. So the orange suit stays, South Carolina Department of Corrections, SCDC. He's going to be wearing that for a while longer. And honestly, he was going to wear it anyway, right? He was going to have that orange jumpsuit anyway because he pleaded guilty to all those money crimes. Decades and decades and decades behind bars for those. But he can still appeal the murder convictions for his wife and his son. News Nation senior national correspondent Brian Enton covered it all. He and I were in a text storm today. I mean, a text storm. When you told me, Brian, the things that you told me, um, top of my head, popped off, I put it back on, did some hairspray, and said, you got to come on the show. What did it feel like in the courtroom? Because I was angry, and I wasn't even, like, feeling at all. Well, that juror that you played the, the soundbite from, she was one of the first ones this morning. And, and you said it, I mean, she said it outright. Like, there were no ifs, ands, or buts. She said that she felt pressured by Clerk Becky and that one of the reasons she had the guilty verdict that she agreed on guilty is because of Clerk, Clerk Becky, which was jaw-dropping. And at the end of the day, also interesting, by the way, the judge gave a ruling at the end of the day, like, when does that ever happen? She took like a 10-minute recess and came back and made her decision. We were expecting a written ruling. But you see the judge there. She tore Clerk Becky apart, Ashley. For the first 10 minutes of her speech that she gave at the end of the day, she basically said Clerk Becky's a liar, I think she lied on the stand today. All she cares about is money and fame, and she took advantage of the whole situation just for herself. So she's not a fan of Clerk Becky. But then at the end of all of that, she said, I don't think this all rises to the level of a new trial. I think it would have been guilty regardless. And she decided uh, that, that, she, you know, that, that Murdoch wasn't going to get a new trial based on this. This is nuts. How about that whole business in the jury room where they're just, you know, sitting back and watching the yeah. live stream of what's going on in the courtroom where they are not supposed to be because they are not supposed to hear what their fellow jurors are saying. Did anybody acknowledge that that was now part of this mess? Did it did it factor in at all? Might it factor yes. in maybe on an appeal of this decision? I think so. And it was crazy because the judge was trying to keep mo things moving along. And all of a sudden, the bailiff walks up to the judge and we're like, what's going on? And then the, the judge says, OK, we're going to take a break, goes into the back, comes out, looks extremely agitated and says, I can't believe this. But uh, the bailiff spotted the jurors in the jury room streaming the trial which is obviously not supposed to be happening. She says the cell phones should have been taken away. They weren't taken away. Uh, and so then she had to call the jurors in and question them about that, where they admitted uh, that it was up. Some of them were streaming it. Others were listening. Um, and, and, you know, the defense, I mean, this is clearly going to be part of a bigger appeal later. Uh, you think? I mean, what is wrong with that courthouse? What a m series of, like, unfortunate uh, clown shows, you know? Okay, so thank you for having to bear all of that, and thank you for bringing it to us, Brian. I should reiterate that the judge did tell the jurors again and again that they had done nothing wrong. This was not their fault. 
and that the hearings were not about them. But when the tampering allegation came to light, some of them jurors did decide they needed a lawyer, and they got one. At least five of those jurors today were represented by a lawyer named Eric Bland. Sound familiar? You should remember that name because Eric Bland also represented several of Murdoch's fraud victims. Chief among them, the sons of the, the housekeeper of the Murdoch's. The one that Murdoch built, the, built their, their kids when she died. Murdoch built her kids out of millions, right? She died on the job. So you can imagine there's no love lost between Alec Murdoch and Eric Bland and Bland's financial clients. But what about his juror clients? They're supposed to be impartial towards Murdoch. As a reminder, here is just a tiny little, you know, amuse-bouche of the language that that lawyer, Eric Bland, representing roughly half a dozen of those jurors today, the language that he has used in describing Murdoch, the man they're actually being questioned about. This is what he has said for the past couple of years. It was just a complete betrayal of trust and betrayal of love that the Satterfield showed for the Murdoch family. It's a disgrace, but there is a silver lining. We have recovered more than seven and a half million dollars, Adrian. Wow. We got a confession of judgment against Alex for four point three million. And uh, we can continue to pursue justice, not only for the Satterfields, but we represent six other victims of Alex's theft and, and uh, his misdeeds. What you don't see, though, is somebody like Alex Murdoch, who is checks the boxes for all criminal type of behavior, everything except we, we don't know about sexual crimes, but he has taken advantage of family. He has stolen from family, from friends, from law partners, from the vulnerable, from the exploited clients that he has uh, stolen from. He is... Um, unlike any any criminal our state has ever seen. It, it's really a lifetime of uh, criminal activity that he had that culminated with those murders. Okay, that's the sanitized stuff because <laughs> he's been pretty colorful and flowery in his descriptions of Alec Murdoch in other uh, uh, moments, shall we say. I want to bring in another lawyer that you might remember, Amy Zimmercheck. She represents Cousin Eddie, also known as Curtis Smith. Uh, that's Alec Murdoch's longtime associate and accused co-conspirator. Uh, good to have you back on the show, Amy. J just first of all, I'd like you to weigh in on what I just laid out. S five of those jurors, at least, are represented by Eric Bland today. They're being questioned by the judge about you know, whether they were influenced in their, in their guilty verdict. And the man that they're in judgment of is sitting right there, and it's a guy that Eric Bland has been slaying uh, for a couple years now. Is there a conflict of interest here? I absolutely believe there is. I, all, we have over 17,000 lawyer members of the South Carolina Bar. We have over 13,000 that are practicing in this state. There is no reason why just a few lawyers should be involved in this entire case. It, it gives absolutely the 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 appearance of impropriety, especially, like you said, when Eric has been very clear about how he feels about Alec, how he feels about uh, Dick and Jim, and how he feels 
basically about defense attorneys in general. And I think that there's a problem when that person is now representing five at least of these jurors who some of which, you know, it will admit that they heard Becky say something. Some won't say anything. It's all very disheartening and very confusing. He also on Friday told our producers, um, my jurors are going to say this, like likely going to say this, which I thought, huh? I mean, for anybody who doesn't know this or hasn't sat on a jury before, when you're a juror, you know, you're, the, the, the court staff are kind of the gods, right? They're your guides, they're your boss, and the judge is kind of your rabbi. And so you believe them, you trust them. And um, that all ended. They, they lost their leaders, they lost their allies in the courthouse when the court case ended. So the only kind of legal guide they've had since then is their lawyer, Eric Bland. I just thought it was very weird and very... I'm glad you said it because, I mean, I have all sorts of stuff to say. Can I ask you to, uh, to weigh in on the ruling today? My jaw, I've been spatula, you know, up off the floor all day. What do you think? It's, it's disappointing not only for the state of South Carolina. I think it's disappointing for every jury. I, just the fact alone that there was this, this allegation. And then for the judge to say that she did not believe the clerk, period. And then to have one juror, well, how many does it take? Would two have been the change? Would three, if if she said, you know, instead of, yes, it changed? It absolutely, I don't, I, like, if she screamed or cried, would that have made a difference? What Our jury system says 12 people. 12 people did not agree on this on this case. It should absolutely be retried. For the, for the sanctity of, of, and this is not, it has nothing to do with guilt or innocence or my client even. This is for the sanctity of the system. The fact that this could go on today in this state is not only a black eye for this state, but I think for justice in general in this, in this country. It's yep. terrifying. I'm with you. Doesn't, doesn't matter what you think about Alec Murdoch. It's, it's not just for him. It's for all of us that we need to keep our justice system pristine. So these kinds of shenanigans, uh, not welcome. Amy Zimmerchak, good to have you. I need to have you back so we can talk about Cousin Eddie because that case is still cooking. Uh, can you come back on the show? Absolutely, and thank you for having me. Always good to have you. I now want to bring in uh, Susan Constantine. Uh, Susan is a trial strategy expert and a jury consultant, so she's perfect to answer this question. I'm just going to read out the list. So we have a juror who said yes. I was influenced by that clerk to vote guilty, number one. Number two, we have jurors who watch the proceedings from the jury room on their phones when they weren't supposed to. That's just today. Number three, we have almost a half dozen jurors represented by the lawyer who has had it in for Alex Murdoch for the last two years financially and has been saying so on, on television and everywhere else. Uh, number four, we have a clerk who had a colleague who said that she lied on, on the stand. Like, basically, you know, inconsistent testimony. And yet, no new trial. Uh, your thoughts, because you've been around the block on this jury business, what do you think? I was just as shocked as you were, Ashley, because I was sitting there on the couch watching the trial unfold, and I'm going, He's gonna, he is going to get a new trial. There's, how can he, how could this be uh, dismissed, especially if there was a juror that says, 
point blank that I was influenced by someone that was representing the court. So I knew that someone was lying. I didn't know right then. I had to go back and I had to analyze both sides. You know, was Becky Smith lying? Was Jersey lying? Who was it? So we put it to the test, got my team on it immediately. We did voice trust analysis. Jerry Crotty, one of our master examiners, we evaluated. Sure enough, Becky Hill was lying and, and that um, Jersey was telling the truth. So... You know, this is, I've never, I've never seen this happen before. This blew my mind, Ashley. Yep. I'm with you. I, I only have a minute, but I have to ask you this, because uh, it gets confusing when you get a double murder verdict like this, and there are many tracks of potential appeal. Is this now a new track? Can they appeal this to go down the road of getting a new trial this way, but continue with other tracks of uh, their appellate plans for, for what happened during the, um, during the trial? I think so, too. But I think even more importantly is that what precedents are we setting from going from here forward with other trials? Because I look at that like what you were talking about, too, Ashley. What's happening right now is really it's like how are we going to protect the sanctity of our court, our judicial system the way it is? Are we now starting to make a shift? Are we going to be looking at things a little bit differently and then making rules as we go along? To me, it's frightening. Yeah, kangaroo court. I mean, it looks ridiculous. And, and if I were a South Carolinian, I'd be offended by what happened today. And if I were in the low country, I'd be embarrassed and offended uh, by, by all of this. And if I were those jurors, I'd not want to do any interviews. That's for sure. Susan Constantine, thank you. Always good to have you. Come back. Thanks, Ashley. Love her wisdom. She knows a ton. Um, coming up, as the weeks go by without a single lead or breakthrough, in those mysterious Kansas City football chiefs' deaths, uh, the pressure is really building on the man they all had in common. And that is the man who hosted the, the final get-together. And the man who now says he is devastated and depressed over being the target of speculation. All of this as one of the victim's brothers says he now knows the position of one of those frozen victims. I'll describe that next. You know, we really love ourselves the mystery, but we really hate unanswered questions. And I kind of feel like I'm speaking for all of us right now. For three weeks, the mystery of the three dead football fans in Kansas City has been nothing but unanswered questions, which is really tormenting the, the families of those dead men. And now, reportedly, it is ruining the life of a fourth man, the man who actually lives in the house where his longtime friends got together on January 7th and where they apparently died. Somewhere. But David Harrington, Ricky Johnson, and Clayton McGinney were not found dead until January 9th, a full two days later. One victim was on the back porch, and two victims were in the backyard. This much we knew until tonight. But tonight, the brother of one of the victims said that David Harrington was, in fact, found frozen in a lawn chair on the back porch. Jonathan Price told Chris Cuomo tonight that while Harrington was in the lawn chair, his brother Ricky Johnson and the other victim, Clayton McGinney, were reportedly lying out flat in the yard when they were found frozen. But again, 
They were found two days after Jordan Willis said they'd left his house right through the front door, very much alive, and he went to sleep. Willis says he has no idea what happened because, according to his lawyer, he spent much of the 48 hours that his friends were missing asleep on his couch. For their part, the police say there were no signs of foul play. And the case is, quote, 100% not being investigated as a homicide. Still, the victim's families are pointing fingers at Willis. And they're suggesting that the men saw something maybe in the house that they shouldn't have or that Willis's career as a scientist somehow played a part in their deaths. Willis is said to be devastated that he did not get to attend the funerals of his friends and is, quote, very depressed at all of this speculation. Jordan Willis's dad told the New York Post that his son would, quote, never in a million years do anything wrong. But with online threats and people driving by that house every day, Willis took leave from his job and found a new place to live. News Nation's Alex Capriello joins me live now from Kansas City. So you've been learning a lot, not only just today, but just in the last few minutes, something about the night uh, of the discovery. Somebody witnessed something. What, what have you found out? Yeah, what's interesting is we've been here all day, but when you do a lot of door knocking during the middle of the day, you don't get a lot of answer doors. People are at work. And so when we were out here setting up our live shot, we actually just had a neighbor approach us who lives right across from the house where this all went down, which is, of course, right here behind me. And he really filled in some gaps about what that night looked like when the investigators first got here. First and foremost, he said it just by happenstance. He happened to be looking out the window at the time that Clayton McGinney's fiance actually came here to snoop around for herself. Remember, she was the one who actually discovered the bodies in the first place and called 911. So from this neighbor's firsthand eyewitness report, he says he watched her actually leave the backyard, this gate right here behind me, call 911. And he said shortly after that, this whole street was flooded with cops. Meanwhile, he's filming the whole thing from his cell phone from his front window, looking out, just wondering what the heck could be happening right here in his neighborhood, right across from his street. We're working on getting that video to you so that way you can show your, video, uh, your viewers. But let me just describe it. He tells me that actually that person at the center of all this speculation, Jordan Willis, was actually handcuffed and detained right here against this brick wall of the house while police were asking questions. He said he filmed as actual investigators were searching through this entire house using flashlights to actually comb through each and every room trying to find any other clues or evidence. Eventually, he said Willis was let go out of that handcuffs. He was taken to a car, presumably questioned more. But this was a big mystery that entire night. Nobody knew what was going on, and it wasn't until the news report started filling in that next day that people started getting some answers. Of course, to your point, still more questions than we have actual answers, but at least we have a better idea of what that actual scene looked like that night. I know that you're getting that video, and that as soon as you get it, we'll try and get it on the air. But quickly, you were able to get an interview about the view out of Jordan Willis's kitchen, and there's a a big sliding glass door. What'd you learn? Yeah, exactly. I think a lot of people here are a little uh, skeptical about the story that we're hearing, uh, uh, in specific, Jordan Willis's story, the fact that he slept through 48 hours without actually having any sort of inclination that his friends were dead outside. And so most people that I'm here uh, in the neighborhood that I'm speaking to tell me that they just don't know uh, don't know Jordan. He seems to be a bit of a hermit. He doesn't come out. He doesn't really talk to neighbors. He has two dogs, we know, but he doesn't really do much dog walking. And so a lot of people are a little weirded out by this whole story. Here's what one neighbor told me. Willis did say that he didn't see um, 
his friends out, but he has a sliding glass door going right into his backyard, and it's in his kitchen, so like, you have to see it. I don't know, I just feel like there's no way you didn't see your friends dead outside. So even if he didn't contribute to their deaths, it's a little weird, he may not be telling the whole truth? Right, I mean, people were calling him, people were knocking on the door, and he wasn't answering to anybody, so I just feel like that's odd that you you wouldn't say anything. I think it's just a matter of time. You know, I, I trust uh, a lot of the people who are like involved in investigating the case. And, you know, I'm just waiting for any answers as a community member. I think that's what we're all waiting for. And we do know now that Jordan Willis no longer lives here. This was a rental property that he uh, lived in. But uh, these neighbors tell me that they saw a U-Haul truck within about a week and then packing it all up and moving out. Uh, it's empty now. There is one light that stays up on the upper floor. But uh, the neighbor here tells me that it's been on every single day since this incident happened. Break in uh, to our coverage, Alex, when you get that video of uh, Jordan Willis being cuffed that night, if you would. I know that's a lot of logistics, but if you can, certainly let us know. We're on the air for another uh, 28 minutes. You got it. Thanks, Alex Capriello, doing that live uh, coverage out there in real time. Appreciate it. Still to come back in 2014, 10 years ago. Two 12-year-old girls decided to lure their friend into the woods and then stab her 19 times. And yet, somehow that young victim survived, crawled her way to safety and to rescue, and eventually helped convict these two young attackers. Um, Kind of. Not really convict. Because while they're locked up, it was kind of not guilty. I'll explain in a minute, but those girls admitted what they did to their friend. And they said they did it to please Slenderman, that freakish character, uh, you know, like a monster character from the Internet in the middle there. And now one of those girls says she wants to be released, and the other one does too. Should they be? Next. Uh, We just went out to break uh, talking about um, Alex Capriello covering the story in Kansas City of Jordan Willis's house what was found in the backyard of his house, three frozen dead friends. And I just want you to see a shot that I have up right now of a neighbor with a KC hat on. Um, We are actually just getting ready to go live to that neighbor because Alex is talking to him. He's just come over to Alex's live shot position um, and he's got some intelligence on, on what happened that night. So as we wire him up for sound, I just wanted you to see that they're talking. Uh, Alex and the, and the neighbor are talking right now in front of Jordan Willis's house. Um, I'm going to do another story while they get ready to go live. And then I'm going to bring you that th- those two live so that they can talk on the air. I'm sure that he's got a lot of intelligence that none of us has been able to gather because we don't live there. So in the meantime, I want to tell you about the Slenderman story. If you know about Slenderman, you know it's an Internet meme found its way into horror stories and video games and then the world of true crime with a real victim, and now there is another real twist. A Wisconsin woman named Morgan Geyser has asked a court to let her leave a psychiatric hospital. This after some of the worst behavior known to mankind um, a decade ago by her hands. Back in 2014, Morgan Geyser and her friend Anissa Weir uh, were both 12 years old, and at the time, they lured their friend into the woods after a slumber party, and they proceeded to plunge a knife into her 19 times. 12 years old. They stabbed their 12-year-old friend 19 times in the woods, and then they left her there. Her name was Peyton Lautner. I say is because she was left for dead, but somehow she did not die. Somehow that little sweetheart 
12 years old, stabbed 19 times, was able to crawl out of the woods and make it to a bike path where a passerby found her and saved her. And that in itself is horrifying and remarkable. But the reason that the girls gave for stabbing Peyton was unfathomable. They said they did it to curry favor with Slender Man. That character. They believed that if they killed for Slender Man, he wouldn't kill their families. Both girls were found not guilty by reason of mental disease. Again, they were 12. Wire was sentenced to 25 years in a psychiatric facility. Geyser got 40. But now Geyser says she is no longer a danger to herself or others. And she wants to be released. And a hearing is now being scheduled for April 10th and 11th. I want to bring in Caitlin Becker. She's a longtime friend of the show. But as of today, she's a News Nation national correspondent. And I'm so thrilled you're on staff. This is the best. So, Caitlin, um, all congratulations aside, this is a very upsetting story. She says she's not a danger. I, I don't understand this. She says she's not. Mar- Morgan Geyser says she's not a danger. How are we supposed to know? Well, really, it's going to come down to the word of three different medical professionals. See, Morgan Geyser was diagnosed with early onset schizophrenia very early on in this legal process. And so she's been in this facility ever since then. She's been evaluated by three separate medical experts multiple times. So these three have been ordered once again by a judge to evaluate her again. They have to turn that report over to the judge at the end of March. And then based on what they say and their assessment of her, the judge will determine whether or not she is in fact still a danger and is capable of being out in the world again. And the three medical professionals, one is sort of on behalf of her, one's on behalf of the prosecution, and one is more of an impartial medical professional. And so the three of them will come together and deliver reports and by that point, the judge will be able to make an okay. assessment. All that's great. Uh, just real quickly, I've got 20 seconds left. What has Peyton Lautner said about this? The victim, the girl who survived being stabbed by her little 12-year-old friends 19 times. Has she weighed in on this? Does she get to weigh in? I would assume yes. I'm sure she gets to weigh in, but she really hasn't spoken out about these particular, this release. However, she is trying to move on from with her life and from this tragedy. She's a sophomore in college, and she is lucky to have her life. A surgeon of hers said that if one of the, the knife wounds had been the breath of a human hair to one side, it would have been fatal. Good Lord. And she's a sophomore in college. That much time has passed. And thank God she's, you're right. Thank God she's alive. Uh, Caitlin Becker, thank you. It's great to have you on on staff. Uh, I look forward to many more of these um, moments together. All right. I have some breaking news. So I have to zip off from Caitlin. I promised you we were going to bring you that interview with the neighbor who lives next to Jordan Willis in Kansas City who saw some things the night that You know, all of this went down with the three dead bodies in the backyard. And we also have his video of Jordan Willis being arrested. And all that's coming up right after the break. Uh, at the center of a bizarre mystery where three men were found uh, dead and frozen in his backyard. He doesn't live at that house anymore. He's moved away because of all of the attention he's getting and the speculation. Uh, Alex, you've been able to to meet up with a, a neighbor of Jordan Willis. I just want to hand it over to you so the t- two of you can talk about what you've been discussing during the break. 
Yeah, absolutely. You remember I told you about Ashton Brady. He was the neighbor who lives right across from Jordan Willis, who just by happenstance looked out at the exact moment that 911 was being called. Ashton, we know now that that was Clayton's fiance that actually discovered those bodies, called 911 and alerted the authorities. Just walk me through what you saw in that moment. So basically, I was just going, uh, turn off all my lights. I was getting ready for bed, locking the doors. I went to lock my front door, and I saw a woman come out of the backyard on her phone, and she looked, she looked distressed because she kept looking back towards the house, and I thought it was weird. But I just moved in, so I really didn't know much, and so I just went back to my room. Ten minutes later, I saw an ambulance drive by, and I said, well, that's just weird. Something's going on. Went to the front, front room, looked out, and I saw that there was already three cop cars, and there was a man detained, and the woman was talking to the other police. And basically, I, I kind of watched that conspire for an hour or two. The man eventually left. Uh, the police searched the house, went through the backyards and everything, and I, I had no idea what had happened. And the next morning, I saw the news that they had found three dead bodies, and I just was kind of in disbelief. I was like, wow, I watched that happen. Right, and, and actually, we're looking at that video that you shot right there on the top left corner of your screen. So basically, you're saying that's the video where you're actually looking out, and you can see Jordan that's, Willis that's, being detained. That's probably within the first five to ten minutes. I, like, I was like, oh, my goodness, something serious is going on at least so yeah so your red flags were going off in that moment but even before that right because you saw some of these victims cars that were right here parked in front of your house and that also kind of alerted you right because that was unusual yeah we we had just moved in but that week we had never seen those cars there and then all of a sudden that whole weekend there was uh cars parked right in front of our drive and they never left not and they stayed there until the police came and even after that we found out they're deceased and but they, yes those cars never left and obviously that was something that raised your suspicions at all. Tell me, I know you, you hadn't lived here for very long, right? Uh, but tell me at all about Jordan Willis, what you know about him. I mean, did you ever see him out and about? Was he friendly? Did he come by and talk to you ever? Honestly, I, I've never seen him out. I never, I never saw him or talked to him, so I, I cannot speak for that, honestly. I do not know. How about the fact that just something that is so strange, this case in general is, is bizarre and we don't have many answers, but the fact of the matter is two, I'm sorry, three men were outside for two days on this backyard, one sitting up in a chair, two in laying down on their backs, frozen to death. I mean, how do you wrap your, your mind around all that information? I, it's a lot, honestly. There's, I, I imagine it has something to do with uh, a bad drug or something, but I... It's, it's strange that how long it occurred for people for something to notice like that if it happened on a Sunday. That's a long time, and I feel like someone should, I, something should have been said, I would imagine. Yeah, it's hard to say out loud because you don't have all the information, but the fact of the matter is three men are now dead. Does it feel like you're getting or your community is getting the answers it deserves right now? That seems to be the big issue that the families have is it just doesn't feel like they're getting closure because they're not getting answers. Yeah, I feel for the families and that, that they just want to know what really happened and I feel like we I mean if if we need to know we need to know I'm sure answers are going to come out but I know a lot of a lot of people are wondering what happened around here that's for sure what is the talk of the town how are people talking about it still because no doubt about it the whole world is looking at this case and talking about it so how do you and your friends talk about it process it work through this whole story you know we just kind of sit down and talk about it sometimes we're just randomly we'll be talking about like like what could have really happened like how how do your three buddies, like, you know, just you not notice them for two days outside in the backyard? So it's, it's really strange for me uh, and, all, and all of our friends. 
I, it's really hard for me to say, but I, I feel like it, it had to have been just I, maybe an accident. I don't know. It's, it, it needs more investigation, though, I think. Ashley, Alex? hang tight. I think uh, Ashley Banfield has a yeah. question. Go ahead, Ashley. I, I do. I don't think he can hear me with an IFB, but if he can't, um, pass this question on. Can you ask Ashton if he sure. saw the bodies coming out of the house? Because we've been, we learned tonight on Chris Cuomo that the father of one of the, the men uh, knew that, that one of the men was, was died or frozen in a position in a lawn chair on the back porch. And I wondered right. if he saw gurneys come out with, with three bodies or if he saw something unusual in the position of the bodies that were brought out of the house. Sure. Uh, we want to know uh, what you saw beyond those initial things that you've shared already, in specific about the bodies coming out of this house. Were you still awake at that time? Did you witness gurneys or medical examiners actually coming out with these bodies or taking them out? So I actually did not. Uh, after that, everyone kind of cleared out, so I, and I didn't know what had happened, so I just went to bed. I, I thought it was just a a misunderstanding or something between a wife and a husband, but that wasn't it at all. So I went to sleep, went to work the next day, and when I was at work, I got an email or a message from a friend, you know, sending me the picture of the article about the dead people, and I was like, oh my goodness. So I honestly did not see an ambulance actually gurney anyone out or anything. What do you remember about the conditions during those days here in Kansas City? Obviously, these bodies were found frozen. Do you remember it being cold, freezing? Obviously, you saw this woman talking on her cell phone at night, 10 o'clock at night, in the winter weather, and so that raised your alarms. But what do you remember just about the, the temperatures or the, the weather around that time? It was cold. It, it, was, it was really cold. I had gone hunting that Sunday, and we hunted a pond, and we, we actually had to put up pretty much an ice prop in there to make the, the pond open. So, I mean, if that tells you anything, we well, could walk on the ice. That's how thick it was. So, I mean, it was, it was definitely below freezing and not temperatures you want to just be outside hanging out in with no, temp- right. with no clothes. Yeah, enough to red raise, or raise red flags. Ashton, thank you very much for sharing that insight with no us. Problem. It really helps us understand a little bit more about that exact night and what investigators were going through. Uh, Ashley, we'll send it on back to you. Unbelievable reporting. Uh, Fantastic work. Thank you, Alex Capriello. And thank you to Ashton Brady. We are flat out of time, but stay tuned. Cuomo's next. Hey, everybody. I'm Chris Cuomo. It's Monday. We're live. So what do you say? Let's get after it. So Iran's proxies attacking us all over the Middle East have been for months. Eventually, they were going to kill some of our troops. And now they have. Three U.S. troops killed in Jordan by a drone. Ignore these stories about how, well, here's what happened. Turns out we mistaken.